I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, November 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, bad blood between the state auditor and former quarterback Brett Favre. Then, amidst the Deep South's uneven COVID response, a major triumph. And what's next for the more than $1 billion of COVID relief in the hands of Mississippi's legislature? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Halloween is over, but the office of the state auditor continues to haunt Brett Favre. The former NFL quarterback claims he's repaid all the TANF funds he received a few years ago amidst a massive alleged misspending spree by then-MDHS director John Davis. But Audit Chief Shad White says Favre still owes the state hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest. White spoke with MPB's Rob Lane late Friday. My audit a couple of years ago, the, the team in the auditor's office found that uh, $1.1 million had been paid to Favre Enterprises and uh, in welfare funds, and those payments were not allowable under TANF. And, and also, when we looked a bit further, we realized that the contract that justified that payment to Favre Enterprises stated that Mr. Favre was supposed to give a number of speeches, and he had not given those speeches. And so... We listed that in our audit as an unallowable TANF expense. Mr. Favre immediately repaid $500,000. A long time went by after that, and then a couple of weeks ago, we issued demands to Brett Favre, along with many individuals, uh, forcing them to repay this TANF, fund, this TANF money. And uh, shortly after that, Brett Favre repaid $600,000, but not the interest that had accrued on the debt that was owed. And so then fast forward to this morning, uh, Mr. Favre issued a press statement that that effectively said he would not have taken payments for no-show speeches. And and then he also claimed that he had reached out to our office, the Office of the State Auditor, for clarification. Neither of those two things is true. He did not. uh, He acknowledged that that he had not given those speeches in a meeting with my agents and, and also because he had that meeting with an agent from the state auditor's office, he did get clarification on uh, on what what happened here and the legal obligations that he had resulting from that contract. You've been outspoken about your feeling that Brett Favre is kind of acting in bad faith here. You called him a liar earlier this morning on social media. And then also, obviously, you're speaking with us. What's the philosophy, the strategy behind being so aggressive and public about this? Honestly, the only strategy that I have is to tell the truth. So the reason I called him a liar in this, uh, in this morning's statement was he lied. 
Uh, not only that, he called me a liar in the first statement and, and suggested that there was no evidence to back up this idea that, uh, that he was obligated to give speeches and then did not give the speeches. When he knows, he has seen the contract with his own two eyes, there's a contract that was formed to justify the payment of $1.1 million to him. And the contract's pretty plain. It says that he's supposed to give three speaking uh, events, three speaking engagements, and he's supposed to give one keynote address. And when he was in a meeting with investigators, uh, one from my office and then others from federal investigative bodies, he was shown that contract and he was asked point blank, did you give the speeches? And he said no. You say Mr. Favre still owes hundreds of thousands in interest. How is that interest calculated for something like this? So the interest is calculated based on a statute that, that clarifies the interest rate that the state charges when, when misspending happens. And then we, of course, calculate it back from the date of payment. And so in this case, we had a date of payment and then a lot of time rocked on. And, and then when you look at uh, when the money was paid back, there was a certain amount of interest that was accrued in this particular case and really in every case. When we have a situation like this where an individual repays the principal but doesn't repay the interest, the only thing that the auditor's office does with that information is take it and send it over to the attorney general's office. We're fact finders in the auditor's office. We identify where money went, whether the law was violated, who ended up with it. We don't have the power to litigate, to haul somebody into court or sue them and say, hey, you've got to pay that interest back. The attorney general's office does have that power. So basically what we do is after we issue a demand, if 30 days has run and the individual who received the demand has not repaid the money, we'll forward all that information over to the attorney general's office. And, and then they get to make the decision about whether or not they would like to litigate that case to, to sue the person and try to get that money back. Shad White is Mississippi's state auditor. Coming up, Mississippi leads the nation in vaccine uptake amongst black residents. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Black people in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana are taking the COVID-19 vaccine at higher rates than black people in the U.S. Brittany Brown of the Gulf States Newsroom reports on how health officials built trust and increased vaccinations in the black community. When the coronavirus hit the Gulf States region in March 2020, black people were contracting the virus and dying from COVID-19 at a disproportionate rate. As vaccines became available, black people were initially more hesitant to take the shot because of the history of health care disparities. But now, nearly 20 months into the pandemic, black residents in Mississippi, Alabama and Louisiana are being vaccinated at higher rates than black people across the country. What happened Early on during the pandemic, the health department created a health equity disparity response unit. That's Victor Sutton with the Mississippi Department of Health. That unit was actually created to address the impact of COVID-19 on African-Americans, Latinx, and other minority groups. He says they collaborated with leaders and organizations in the Black community to build trust in order to distribute COVID-19 resources and vaccines. Now, nearly half of all Black Mississippians have taken a shot. You know it's a series of two shots. I get both on them today? No, wait. Okay. You come back on this day. 21 days from now. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
At Jackson State University, the coronavirus vaccine is being offered for free to students and the community. On this HBCU campus in Mississippi's capital city, freshman Kendra Day is getting the vaccine after recovering from COVID-19. Being nervous about hearing the different sides of getting it and not getting it and the side effects, but I just had to trust what happened and go with the best option. It's that kind of trust that helped black Mississippians achieve a 49% vaccination rate. Sutton says working with partners makes all the difference. We can't do this work without partners in the community around the state. Those partners being the faith-based community, HBCUs, local elected officials, any and everybody that we could reach. Mississippi isn't the only state in the region with a high vaccination rate among black residents. 48% of black Louisiana residents and 41% of black Alabama residents have taken the COVID-19 shot. Each of these states is outpacing the national average, where 35% of black people in the U.S. have been vaccinated. When people know the folks that are providing them with the information and they trust those people, then more people show up. Dr. Mary McIntyre is with the Alabama Department of Public Health. Like Mississippi, she says the department worked with leaders and organizations in the community to get the shot in people's arms. And in Alabama, in the heart of the state's Black Belt region, more residents are vaccinated in Lowndes County than anywhere else in the state. Nearly 64 percent of county residents have taken a COVID-19 shot. And Lowndes County is 72 percent Black. Churches, historically black colleges, the black mayors, along with them, allowed us to be able to reach multiple locations where people were most at risk. In Louisiana, where 48 percent of black residents are vaccinated, Dr. Jennifer Avegno with the New Orleans Health Department says they decided to address the impact of COVID-19 head on. We knew in New Orleans that we would have to really be deliberate in our campaign and outreach to everybody, but particularly to our residents of color. Avegno says they understood the mistrust and hesitancy in the Black community. Our residents of color bear the brunt of decades and generations of health inequities and structural racism that have created vastly different health outcomes. While more than 1.8 million black people in the Gulf states have taken the shot, there's still an average of 1,000 new COVID-19 cases reported daily in the three states. Health officials are still encouraging everyone to get vaccinated. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Brittany Brown. This story was produced by the Gulf States Newsroom, a collaboration between WBHM in Birmingham, WWNO in New Orleans, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and NPR. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Hopes for a legislative special session to legalize medical marijuana in the state may be fading, as lawmakers say they're at at an impasse with Governor Reeves over the details of a draft cannabis bill. If no resolution is reached, the issue will remain shelved until early next year. Advocates for a marijuana program are increasingly frustrated. Kobe Vance spoke with a Jackson man by the name of John Travlian, a Travelian who's part of the newly formed Mississippi Cannabis Patients Alliance. So you see, I have a scar on the back of my neck and I have a scar on my stomach. I have two major surgeries that I've had in my life due from a car accident and um, I have to deal with pain management. So I'm just looking at options to deal with pain management, trying to tap into it from the most natural perspective as possible. Medical marijuana was legalized here in Mississippi. What would that mean for you? 
my understanding, you know, assist with the pain and everything. And um, so I just I want to tap into things that assist with that and you know, help live a peaceful life. What are your thoughts about the governor have still not having called a special session despite there being a bill ready by lawmakers? Yeah. I, I just I wonder about that, where it seems like he speaks uh, positively about it, but then he's not acting on it. So he's kind of having a talk, but the walk isn't connecting to the talk. And what would it mean to you if this were to be delayed even further into the regular session like, that would start in January? Well, I, anyone who is dealing with pain would like to receive um, solutions to that as early as possible. You know, I would like to have some solutions right now. The sooner the better with 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 positive situations. So I think the it to him to wait for it to wait longer, they're just just waiting on relief, waiting on solutions. Lawmakers say a medical marijuana bill will take top priority during the next legislative session if no deal for a special session is reached. Dispatchers for 911 make critical assessments about every call. Should law enforcement respond or should emergency medical professionals? A new survey by the Pew Charitable Trusts finds few 911 dispatch centers across the nation have enough staff and specialized training to manage mental health crisis calls. Sataniel Wimbley is with the Mississippi chapter of the National Alliance of Mental Illness. She speaks with MPB's Desiree Frazier. In my experience, it has been that the operators are not necessarily effectively trained. And that is something that has been noted in the process of um, crisis intervention teams and making sure that individuals understand how to figure out if it's a crisis, a mental health crisis, or if it's a physical crisis. And sometimes they may send out the wrong person, but it's very important that the dispatcher knows who to send out. And if they're not trained correctly, that's where there's a disconnect. So many of them are not trained correctly. So what are you seeing on the ground? What are you hearing from families? What we're seeing is sometimes because of the operators not knowing who to send, they will send an officer who is not trained in crisis intervention, which means that officer does not know how to handle a person who is in a mental health crisis, and that can be very dangerous. We've seen some of those instances around the country where people in crisis have been killed, unfortunately. What are you able to do to advocate for this, for more training? What we have been doing is, um, of course, there's crisis intervention teams forming around the state of Mississippi. And in those teams, they make sure to invite the dispatchers to the table so that they can understand why it's important to be able to differentiate between the types of calls that they're receiving. And then nationwide, we will be launching um, the state 988 crisis response. So instead of calling 911, mid-2022, I want to say June, everyone will have the option of calling 988. And then someone will automatically know, the dispatchers will automatically know that it's a mental health crisis because of the number that was called. And we are in the process in the state of um, figuring out what happens after that number is called so that those individuals get the help that they need and then the support following the initial contact with the officers. 
Now, how do you anticipate that playing out? Because we know that the state has been sued because of its treatment of people with mental health issues, that there should be more services in the community. There are services, but there are questions about how effective, how widespread, and if they can get to a crisis in time to really make a difference. How is that all going to work together Currently, there is a Mississippi 988 planning coalition that I um, am a part of, and those are the issues that we're actually facing. Um, This will help to make sure that all of the partners are brought in, and that means the community mental health centers, um, local nonprofits such as NAMI, and different support systems so that the individuals have options, as well as the family members understand what the options and the resources are in the area. So it's more of giving the individuals and their families more options to make sure that they know where to find the help that's actually needed. And it's not that You know, this will be a one-time call and nothing's happening. The plan is for someone to get help past that call. The call is just the initial contact saying that I know someone is struggling with the mental illness or I know that my, my, you know, I'm struggling with the mental illness. And then past that, there's some other things that we're working to get in place so that when that call is made, it's not just the end of their help. Satanya Wimley is executive director of the Mississippi chapter of the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Coming up, how the state Senate plans to handle a billion plus in COVID relief funds. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The state is flush with federal COVID relief cash, but Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman says it's important that lawmakers take a deliberate approach to spending it. Hoseman spoke on the issue last week at the Economic Council's annual hobnob. We have, we're at $1.25 billion. I just checked today, we're at $29 million over this month in revenue over anticipated expenses. Only thing I can say about that are two things. That's awesome. And the second, it won't last. In recent weeks, Hoseman has described the COVID funds as a generational opportunity to invest in the state. With that in mind, he's appointed a Senate Select Committee to study how best to allocate the funds. Republican John Polk of Hattiesburg has been tapped to chair the committee. He speaks with Desiree Frazier. Well, first, the role is to try to get organized, try to learn as much as we can about what is allowable uh, by the federal rules on what we can spend the $1.8 billion on, then try with the committee to identify the best use of those funds, the most needs for those funds. And as the Lieutenant Governor has stated, the, these funds need to be spent on generational issues, things that can change Mississippi for the future in, in, in at least one or two generations. So that's going to be a big task. Also, uh, the committee will be recommending only to the Appropriations Committee, which will then uh, recommend to the Senate. And it's a long way to go from there because then you have the House uh, that, in my uh, understanding, has not begun to attack this problem at all. So uh, it's going to be a long process, but we're willing to do it. 
Do you plan on having hearings before the start of the January session? Our plan right now is to have hearings, possibly as soon as the middle of uh, November, but uh, to try to have hearings, I think there will be several because there are a lot of issues we've got to hear. We've got to first hear what we can spend funds on. Secondly, we want to look at what other states have done. Thirdly, we need to hear from people in Mississippi of what they think that the needs are, the most basic and, and necessary needs. So, yes, we will have hearings. And the recommendations, uh, are you going to bring those out by the start of the legislative session, or do you want to do that before? I think what we'll look at is trying to get it out for the very first part of the legislative session. In fact, Chairman uh, Hobson told me that that was his goal, is to try to have a bill ready to be looked at by the first week of January. Do you have any priorities going into this for your district? Uh, Not necessarily. I'm thinking more it's the state of the whole. Uh, Of course, the district I represent, I'll do my best to see what their needs are and to meet some of those needs. But we've got to think of this as uh, the entire state of Mississippi and what's going to be best for our entire state. It mentions using the money for water, sewer, COVID healthcare related expenses, tourism. So there's some you have some options. We have a lot of options. And also we can use it for uh, lost revenue, which uh, the numbers vary there. We'll have to really dig down in that. But we can even put some of the funds in the general fund, which would then open up other avenues that we could spend the monies on. Infrastructure seems to be one of the key uh, elements that the feds want us to look at. And of course, Mississippi has numerous uh, areas that need water, sewer improvements. And of course, I think broadband is even an issue that we can look at and spend some funds there. And of course, Mississippi, with as many rural uh, people as we have living in rural areas, I think we need to certainly look at what we can do to improve broadband. Although we've done a tremendous amount in the last couple of years as a legislature uh, in seeing that we do bring broadband as as much as possible to the rural areas. Senator, is there anything that I didn't ask you that is important to share about moving forward on this project? It's not. It may be that we need to tell our people in Mississippi this will not be fast. Uh, It will be slow. It will be tedious. And it'll be a well-thought-out project before we make our recommendation to Uh, the full committee, Appropriations Committee. I'm very pleased with the members that have been assigned to the committee. I think we can all work well together. I think it's a diverse group that will will have an input from just about every area of of expertise with the group that that has been put together. And I look forward to working, working with each and every one of them. Senator John Polk, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this. You're quite welcome.